it's not just about hobbits and unicorns and you know rainbows imagination is just about how our hearts and loves are shaped and how we imagine what's going to happen the next day the next week the next year and what we imagine the good life to be and and how that works out in our lives and how we should behave it's the imagination is at the heart of all that it's watering time everybody it's time for apollo's watered a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. What has shaped the way that you see the world? Have you ever given thought to that just for a moment? I mean, is it your gender, where you were born, who your parents were, the region that you're from, the school that you went to? I mean, all of these things play a factor in how we see the world. But it is our faith that should be the primary lens through which we see things, and that should shape everything else. Now, undoubtedly, most of the people who listen to our show, and I'm assuming this is true of you, might fall under such umbrella terms like Protestant or Evangelical. And if that is true of you, then I would venture to say that you want to be shaped by the Bible. And I hope that is true of you. And I hope that's true of all of us. We want that to be true. We want the word of God to shape us. But I found that as I progressed in my Christian life and talked to, I can't even begin to think about how many people I've spoken to about these things, that people are shaped not just by the word of God, but by the stories that we have told ourselves. And oftentimes, these are stories in our culture that have been repeated over and over and over again. They convey an idea of the good life and how we are to live. And many of these stories, oddly enough, can be traced back to (laughs) the 18th and 19th centuries, especially in England and in the U.S. Now, I know that might be a surprise, and you might say, no, that's not true of me. But as we delve down into this, I think you're going to find that these stories have actually directed our imaginations in ways that we may not have even realized until we come up against someone who was raised and sees things differently. Now, I know this is true for myself. It wasn't until I started to travel to different parts of the world and interact with Christians from around the world that I realized how much my own culture and the stories that we had told ourselves had actually shaped us. And shaped me. Now, I know for most of you that are out there, this is a statement that makes you raise your eyebrow like the rock. But if you've followed our show for very long, you know that we're all about understanding not just how to engage with our culture, but understanding how it shapes us. Because we may have unconsciously imbibed values and beliefs that are actually not biblical. This is why we have brought such individuals on the show who come at this subject from a variety of different angles. Philosophers like Mark Talbot and Christopher Watkin, or historians like Carl Truman, David Bebbington, Mark Knoll, Bible scholars like Taylor Lau and Trimper Longman, just to name a few. This week, we take on another angle. We're going to be looking at it from the angle of imagination and literature. Now, I know some of you out there are not big advocates or fans of literature, but hear me out. Because 
It's in these stories of literature that have migrated into movies that communicate the stories that we tell ourselves. Which is why I am talking with professor and author Karen Swallow Pryor about her new book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. We tell stories. It's how we find traction and meaning as to what's important, what's admirable, and what's avoidable and abhorrent. We do it with movies like Rocky or Superman. We have characters we identify with and aspire to. But before movies, we had other novels and stories that shaped how we looked at the world. These stories gave us pictures, heroes, images of the good life that shaped how we looked at and lived in the world. And we probably didn't even realize it. I know that I didn't fully grasp it until I read Karen's book. This is a conversation that is at all at once fascinating, challenging, and at times intensely personal as Karen shares her insights and her heart. It's an important conversation on a crucial and often misunderstood topic that shapes who we are and how we not just see, but interact in the world. I am so happy that we get to chat with Karen and so many other wonderful people like her. We get to chat with some of the greatest thinkers in Christianity today each week. And we get to bring them to you. You get to hear these wonderful voices. And I'm so delighted that we can bring them to you. And it just reminds me again that we're doing this together. And there is so much more to do, which is why we need to enlist your help, our loyal listeners. We need your help to help bring these important voices that need to be heard. If you want to help in that, then simply click the link in your show notes and click the amount that works for you. To be able to fulfill the mission God has for us, we need to think differently about our world and our role in it. And sometimes we can get so stuck in the way that it has been done before that we can't see what God is doing now. That's where the imagination comes in. So get your espresso or coffee and perhaps a Cinnabon and listen in as we chat on the evangelical imagination. Happy listening. Karen Swallow Pryor, welcome to Apollo's Water. Hello, thank you for having me. Okay, are you ready for the Fast Five? I hope so. Okay, these are going to be easy. All right, here we go. Your favorite genre of literature? Novel. Novel, okay. That's an easy one. All right, favorite era though? Uh, 19th century. Well, that's what you majored in, right? Well, probably 18th century, but 19th century is more fun. Okay. All right. Number three. How about this one? What is the best date night restaurant? Oh, um, wow. We don't have a lot of nice restaurants where we live. So um, I'll have to think a little outside the box. I mean, I love Thai food. So any Thai restaurant. Hmm. Do you ever get, I mean, I know this isn't romantic, but they have those Thai drinks with the little things in the bottom of them. What do they call those things? Those, you know what I'm talking about? The big straws. I I just go for the food. (laughs) Oh, the food is good. But I always, I I like those little, I don't know what they're called, but they're they're almost like an icy and they have, I can't, my wife is listening to this. I know she's going to be listening to this and she's going to be yelling. She's going to be saying it as she's listening what I'm missing, but (laughs) it's a good little drink that they have there. Okay. Number four. If you could be a play, okay, what would be the name of the play and who would play you? 
Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, if I could be a play, what would be? Uh, um, I would be um, Antigone and I would be played by Kate Blanchett. <laughs> oh, that's a great, she's a great actress. I know. I love her. I have a she's good a crush on her. Great <laughs> actress. I mean, she can play anything, mm -hmm. really play anything. I mean, if you can be Queen Elizabeth and play a villain in Marvel, hey, <laughs> I mean, that's impressive. That's impressive. Okay. Tell me, okay. You're going to have to excuse me. I'm not a literature professor. I know the name, but tell me Antigone again. Uh, Sophocles. Oh, okay. Greek, tra Greek tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. She, that died, she dies in the end. Well, now you ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's been around for centuries. <laughs> okay. How about number five? If you could be a character in any novel, who would it be and why? Um, it, it would be Jane Eyre because, I mean, Jane Eyre is, I mean, really her story is a story of every modern soul, every modern Christian soul. Um, on pilgrimage in a nominally Christian world. So I like that. All right. Well, let's, let's get to learning more about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and you're a professor of literature, but also run a book called evangelical imaginations. So give us a very brief overview how you got, how you got to where you're at today. Well, I am. Yeah. I've been an English professor for over 30 years now. And um, I got to where I am because I grew up loving literature, loving to read, loving school also. I mean, I just, you know, I I've always loved school. I never wanted to leave. So I never did. So I, I teach literature and I also, you know, I really am interested in cultural engagement, cultural criticism, and, and literature reflects culture. So I think that's sort of another niche that I've carved out is like looking at culture at large, but also evangelical culture or subculture and all the things that have formed it. And so I'm interested in evangelicalism, the history of it, because it is, it began in the 18th century in England, which is my period. And a lot of what we're experiencing now good and bad is rooted in that period. And so kind of trying to make all those connections that I've, that I've studied my whole adult life is, is really that that's what this book is. Hmm. Where did you grow up? I was born and raised mostly in Maine. Um, and oh. yeah, I moved to Buffalo, New York when I was in high school. And so that's where I kind of ended up going to school and university and um, lived there for a long time before moving to the Bible Belt, where I am now. Which is very different. I lived in New England. <laughs> it's very, very different. I mean, culture shock doesn't even begin to describe it, and I've never really recovered, actually. You know, I mean, we'll get into this more, but I think a lot of the why people in my church life now, not I don't mean my local church, but just in Christian life now, um, misunderstand me is because I have a posture that's very different from what you find in the Bible Belt. I mean, I grew up among, I mean, I was the only Christian I knew, <laughs> yeah. you know, outside of my family. So I grew up among secularists and agnostics and skeptics. And um, I just never took my faith for granted or took other people's faith for granted. So I've always just had a sort of open posture toward others. Um, and it's a much more defensive and sort of circling the wagons <laughs> um, 
ethos here in the in the in the South, I think. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. You mentioned and refer to David Bevington in the book. And I remember talking with David, we were talking about one of the differences in the posture of British Christian or British evangelicals and American evangelicals. And he was mentioning how you have a cultural power that we do not. And and it causes you to think differently. It causes you to express it very differently. And of course you being from, so do you call yourself a New Englander or an Easter? What do you call yourself? A Yankee. <laughs> That's an easy one to do. How old were you in Maine? Um, so we moved away from there when I once when I was little, but my dad's job moved him back and forth, and then moved away. I've been gone since I was sixteen, but I still have oh. fam, family there um, and friends, and yeah, that's where the old homestead is. And so, yeah, were your, were your family? You mentioned something else in the book. Did you grow up on a farm? I'm just, I just grew up in the country. We just had a few acres. Uh, yeah. Okay. But my you, grandparents were farmers. I mean, I, I just always lived in a very rural area or mostly lived in a rural area when I was in college. I didn't, but yeah. Okay. Let's transition then into the book, your newest book, which is the evangelical imagination. So let's talk about the evangelical imagination for a moment. First of all, let's just talk about the title, not Christian imagination, Evangelical imagination. Why the evangelical imagination as opposed to Christian or Baptist imagination? Yeah. So, I mean, this, well, we could talk a lot about this. So, I am an evangelical. um, And so that's partly why. And also, I mean, I think that I don't think anyone would disagree that evangelical has become a word and an idea that has, you know, dominated the headlines since, like, well, let's just say 2016. When it started to be used as kind of a demographic category by pollsters and pundits um, because of the presidential election, all of a sudden that word was, you know, on everyone's mind because of the evangelical voting block. And so a lot of people, either who are outside evangelicalism or even inside, have not really used or understood that term. It's it's. Most people don't identify as evangelical. You know, they identify, if they're Christians, they identify according to their denomination, maybe like they're Baptist or Methodist or just even just they're Christian. And evangelical really is largely sort of a historical and sociological category and that, that people may not identify as, but it's still extremely important. 81% of white evangelicals voted for the president in 2016 
that's a pretty significant voting block. And so, but, but I actually did my dissertation in this whole area. That was, you know, that was a couple, that was a long time ago. And evangelicalism has that, as I mentioned before, has that history that goes back to the early 18th century and had a very influential formative role in both England and America, the whole transatlantic region, and actually gave rise to, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but it gave rise to the Victorian age and to Puritanism, the Puritans that founded America. And so our whole American history, our whole Western civilization in the modern era is is very strongly defined by evangelicalism and that also means american culture it's is shaped by evangelicals and so people who want to know about who evangelicals are including evangelicals um, there's a lot of analysis that's done on that but nothing that's been done on on our imaginary our social imaginary which is a term i kind of explain and unpack in the book and we can talk about that but i'm getting way ahead of myself here you know it's interesting you mentioned that the the term evangelical i know we had david bevington on here you cite david bevington's quadrilateral and then you offer tim larson as a bit of a corrective or enhancing a little bit more or further defining it but I remember years ago where David Wells, he said, I'm, I'm done with the word. He goes, I'm going back to Protestant just because it's become so polluted with so many different political labels. And yet there are, there are some that are saying, no, it, I want to go back to the classical use of the term, not in a political sense. I want to look at it in a sociological and theological sense and how it was understood classically because of the pieces that are there are still true. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, it, it has become so united with political ideology that in some ways it's lost its it's it's kind of essence if you will but we so we have the term evangelical but what's talking about imagination and social imaginary so you've adopted charles taylor's term from secular age and this idea of social imaginary and we've been talking about the imagination a little bit on apollo's water we know we've talked about uh, with malcolm guite uh, someone that we both know and the importance of imagination, but something that has largely been overlooked by evangelicals, just because it seems to be superfluous to accomplishing the Great Commission and unnecessary. But we need to see that really, even that it shapes or lack of imagination has shaped that understanding of different things. And much as you've noted within the book of what we have shaped, what we have believed and gone through time has been shaped, not only by culture, but our idea of what it should be. So let's get into the imagination here. How do you define or describe, I don't want to limit there so much because you are a literature professor and sometimes descriptions are better than definitions. <laughs> so how would you describe the imagination for us? Hmm. That's, so that's such a good question. And, and, and if, if this book were being, if this were an academic book or a more narrowly focused book, it might be more accurately titled The Evangelical Social Imaginary. But like nobody knows or cares what a social imaginary is, even though I define it in the book, right? So, you know, that's why the subtitle is important, how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis, because it is about the stories, images, and metaphors that shape and form us. And so in the early stages of, of writing this book, and this the, that was the working title that the publishers eventually went with, and I would, when I would mention my working title as the evangelical imagination, he would be like, oh, a book about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And I was like, no, no, I, I mentioned them. I mentioned them. <laughs> I, I, I know it's like, and, and another, another thing that has happened through my entire life. 
and I'm going somewhere with this, believe me, in relationship to your question, is when people would find out that I'm a Christian and an English professor, they would say, oh, I love Tolkien too. And I'm like, I've never even read Tolkien. Like I just read like 18th and 19th century literature. I mean, so I've read a little bit of Tolkien now, but so Christians generally, especially evangelicals, I'm speaking in broad terms here, generally neglect the imagination in the modern era. But when we think about imagination, we still have these like very rigid, small boxes. Lewis and Tolkien, that's imagination, right? Um, no, there's much more than that. And so I, I, you know, I go at great lengths to explain this in detail in the book, but, you know, the, the imagination is, is, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's basically our, our ability to, to make pictures and to, to project, you know, to envision a future, envision the past, envision things that are not in front of us. But our imaginations are shaped in community. We often think of it as kind of in an individual capacity, but, and it is that, but it's something, I mean, it is formed in community, it's formed by our culture and not just what, but even how we imagine is, is, is fate. And it, there's a pool of sort of collective, this is what I'm drawing on Charles Taylor here. What he calls the imaginary is this collective pool of, uh, of precognitive metaphors, legends, myths, and, and stories about, well, about anything, but in terms of what really drives us, it's, it's what we envision the good life to be. And I draw, I draw also in my thinking and my work and in this book on, on James K.A. Smith and his sort of Augustinian project of, of imagining the kingdom retreat. Yeah. Yeah, imagining the kingdom, desiring the kingdom. Um, his popular version of of that work is uh, of that series is "You Are What You Love," and and sort of the the thing that he says over and over that makes you know makes immediate sense is, um, we are not heads on sticks, right? Human beings are not heads on sticks. We actually are driven first by our loves and our desires, and th- that shapes what we think. And so our imagination is very much rooted in in this precognitive level of uh, you know before we're thinking and again to just kind of back up i'm a big big biblical worldview person like growing up in a christian home being a christian from a young age it wasn't really until i discovered biblical worldview thinking when i was actually in my in my 20s that my faith came alive for me and i love biblical worldview but I love biblical worldview because I love thinking about things. I love analyzing things. I love really being conscious and intentional about making decisions and going, to, you know, going through my life. I'm over overdo that a lot. And so, biblical worldview is actually my love, and that's not everyone's love. So, when I discovered the work of of Jamie Smith, I realized you know, he's he's absolutely right. Like we are driven first by our desires and our loves. And if if you don't love just overthinking everything, then you're going to be driven by something, something else. And we don't always recognize what that is. And the imagination is a is a big, big part of that. And so again, I, I try to describe that more in the book, but it's not just about hobbits and unicorns and you know rainbows imagination is is just about you know what how our hearts and loves are shaped and how we imagine what's going to happen 
the, this day, you know, the next day, the next week, the next year, and what we imagine the good life to be and, and how that works out in our lives and how we should behave. It's the imagination is at the heart of all that. And so you see what I've been telling you. It's nothing like it seems. It's what I've been telling you. Oh, you'd learn what I mean. If you can't But the risk Are you Living it take Thinking in even in terms The way you're describing it I have to always bring it back For my own imagination To, to do this And I, I was thinking about my daughter My daughter um, got engaged A few weeks ago And now she's imagining that future She's thinking it through what she wants to do, where they want to go. I mean, even the wedding and the honeymoon and how they're going to live and what are they achieving in life. But that's part of the imagination. That's why when a relationship ends, it's not just the end, but the dreams that you created with that person. And But it's these ideals on what we believe to be the good life. I've had other people tell me, actually, one young man, he saw that my daughter was getting married and he'd been in my youth ministry years ago when I was a pastor. And he's a single adult now and, and he's he's a little bit older. And he, he, but he was lamenting. He goes, my life is terrible because, you know, I remember when your daughter was born and she's getting married and I'm still not, but in his mind, that imagination of what the good life is, is wrong. And he doesn't see singleness as a gift the way that, that God designed it to be. But these are things that we carry and we don't even realize it. The wow. hero motif, the Joseph Campbell idea, the, the, the hero of a thousand faces, this, or even in our books and literature, we see it all the time. And, and in America, we don't realize it until we're confronted by another vision of that's a different ending. I don't remember who it was, but they had gone to a play, I think in Malaysia or in Vietnam and, and the, the hero dies and there's no resurrection, evil wins. And it was such a jar to his system because in every motif, every movie that he had seen and he imbibed in America was so much of there's a resurrection, there's a new, there's a hope. He was talking to his uh, translator and his translator could see that he was bothered. And he said, he goes, why are you bothered? He goes, because evil wins. He goes, but that's how it's been for our people. That's our culture. So the, so you you have that. I mean, I think you're capturing that. I just don't think as evangelicals, they realize what they're living out of, because it's very much of a narrow lane. We're doing gospel. We're doing gospel. These other things don't matter. We're doing gospel. We're doing gospel. And you're saying, no, no, no. Even the way you're doing gospel is an idea of something that someone else has given you on what the Christian life is. And until you look back and see how it's developed over time, that it's much more broad than you realize. I mean, we still see that Jesus is the Christ. He's the savior of the world. But there is this idea where we have truncated it and made it smaller and and we we fail to see how we've been shaped by our culture. Isn't that right. what you're looking right. at? There, yeah, right? I mean, to boil it down into a phrase that I do use in the book, it's, it's really just examining our previously unexamined assumptions. We mm -hmm. all, have, that's part of being human. We have part of being in a culture, in a community, is that it brings with it assumptions that we inherit. And if we don't examine them, then they're just there underneath the surface and we don't even realize it. Well, this, this idea of comfort, for example, let's bring that up in our culture with that. If, I, if I'm hurting, something's wrong, but suffering actually biblically is an aspect of our sanctification that we fail to appropriate. But we think suffering bad, bad. God doesn't want me to suffer. God wants me to be happy. Well, where did that come from? Exactly. Exactly. There. <laughs> and we can trace we can trace its origins in a number of places, but none of them are in the Bible. 
and that's that's the hardest part is people don't realize that. And that's why you even I was looking at your subtitles. I mean, and again, you you take this from literature, which I found to be very interesting because you brought me into into worlds that I did not realize. And by the way, just as an aside there, you're advocating why reading outside and reading literature actually is representative of certain cultural movements and beliefs that actually help as as Jackson Wu told me when he was mentioning it brought it it lengthens our mirrors on our trucks that we can see more of the world around us in a different way is that that idea that's is a great me- no that's that's a great metaphor i mean i just yeah i i i have a hard time wrapping up my mind around people wouldn't why people especially christians wouldn't read widely and other things but yeah apparently we are in a culture where that's an assumption too <laughs> Well, that is true. I mean, I, and again, all stats are made up on the spot, right? Uh, how many people are actually reading anymore and not reading? And I know some people are just so busy, but that itself is based on an imaginary on if I need to be busy in order to make money to do this. I, I remember Peter Kreeft writing a book years ago called Socrates Meets Jesus. And in it, he imagined Socrates appearing in a library. It's Harvard, basically, in their their basement. And he's trying to figure out this modern world. And he's doing what he does. He asks questions. And these questions expose some of the assumptions that we hold dear on what the the good life is. So let, let, let's go to that for a moment. Because you have written on that. I mean, even in your other book on reading well, and you mentioned uh, finding the good life through great books. Let's try to even envision that. Let's imagine that for a moment. How should we envision the good life? And then from that, I think we can see how imagination shapes it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, this is sort of cliche, but I I just think it's cliche because it's so powerful. It's like that famous quote from C.S. Lewis about the, the child making mud pies in the slum who's, you know, doesn't want to, isn't enticed by an invitation to a holiday at the sea because he doesn't know what that is, you know? So, so we, we're, we're just so like that. We just can't imagine, be, we aren't capable of imagining beyond what we're presented with. And so that's what books and all art uh, can do for us is to present us with um, experiences and capacities and situations and possibilities beyond our finite, limited, you know, human physical experience. And so it ex- that expands our imagination and therefore expands our ability to, to envision what the good life might constitute. Uh, and of course, as Christians, you know, we, we have a, we have a foundation for that and laid for us in the Bible. Uh, but there's still so many possibilities, even in being a Christian and just being in this world and so many things that we might encounter that we might not imagine that we would encounter that literature and art are a way of sort of preparing us for that even before we encounter them or, or they direct us in ways that we might not be directed if just by our own physical geographical surroundings. By the beauty of your life, I have seen a miracle. I have seen a miracle. Blessed days with you in the corner of my arm, I have seen a miracle. I have seen. 
Geit mentions in his book, Lifting the Veil, when we see beauty, it evokes longing, the idea for more, wanting more. And even I remember talking with Jeremy Treat, he wrote a book on kingdom and he mentioned how we can have beauty poverty. Where this, and you see this actually. I remember Andrew Peterson writing in his book about, I think it was Garden of the Gods, something along that line. But he he talks and he's telling a story. I think it was with Wendell Berry. He's looking at how certain cities were constructed as just these steel or concrete buildings without any type of uh, plant or you know flora and fauna anywhere, and how crime was so rampant. But when they planted trees, it actually caused it to go down because there's something about the human as 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 part of being God's image bearers that we have that desire is kind of stoking that desire for the kingdom rather than just cutting it off and being so narrowly focused. Because really, that imagination is to be in service to God to show the love of God and the fulfillment. Because even in the Great Commission, and I remember talking with Kelly Capic about this. Kelly and I were discussing it and he said, one of the things that we were to do is to show a bit um, what it means to be fully human. And, and Daniel Strange just wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition and, and Themelios. And he said, you know, the first millennium was deciding who Jesus is. The second millennium was talking about salvation. And the third millennium is what does it mean to be human? And we're understanding this full humanity at play because we, we're not machines, even though the industrial revolution has kind of forced us into that mechanistic nature, but we see a desire for beauty, a desire for rest. This is one of the reasons why pastors are burning out left and right, is they're lefting at living out of this social imaginary of this narrow focus, not understanding the purpose of rest and rhythm. And like, as Joseph Pieper talks about, and Alan Noble talks about too, is this idea of leisure. Sorry, I'm preaching. <laughs> No, right, right. No, I mean, it really, and I mean, and, and Jesus is the one who shows us what it's like to be human, right? Because he was fully human, right? And, and that's, that's the part that I see. And I, I've seen though that, and I remember hearing this years ago, I, I remember hearing a president of my, my school, he was talking to a guy who was a preacher and he said, I, you know, the devil needs to t- never takes a break. Neither do I, I work seven days a week. And, and he, you know, just kind of spot responded and said, I never knew he was our example. And, 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 you know, this, that's a silly little thing, but it, it does kind of jar you to realize we're even made for rest. But but even with the technological advancements we have, we can be, or at least the illusion of, of being everywhere all the time. And then we feel this unbelievable guilt that we can't do everything that we want to do. And we have our own cultural blind spots now. But when we step back, again, this C.S. Lewis chronological snobbery idea, it helps us to see things differently, which is what you're doing. And actually showing us, though, some of the imaginaries that we've inherited on what the Great Commission is and how it's worked out is shaped more by the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, Victorian society than it is by the first century and understanding how the gospel was worked out. When you say that would be it, I mean, and you, you yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You go through I, that piece by piece. Keep going. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this that was sort of the genesis of this book in, in kind of a narrow way is in teaching Victorian literature specifically to evangelical students at an evangelical institution, a conversation that would just keep coming up. Again, looking at that period specifically, it was shaped by the early evangelical movement, which kind of gave rise to it, both good and bad. I mean, evangelicals were the ones who popularized and implemented the ideas of social reform and activism and valuing the nuclear family. And the work ethic, which brought about the Industrial Revolution. I mean, these are all like good things, but they also have, you know, if they go unchecked, they have kind of a dark underside. And so teaching the literature of this period 
that is so marked by evangelicalism to evangelical students in an evangelical setting, so many times the question would arise, you know, because my students would recognize, well, this is just like the subculture I grew up in. Talking about the purity of women, women's sexuality, especially and having that double standard in which women's pure sexual purity is more important than than men's sexual purity, which is a you know recurring theme in Victorian literature. My students would say, This this isn't just Victorian, this is how I grew up. And so we would look at it and say, Well, is this, you know, is the the way we, you know, think about this and talk about it and apply it, is it really biblical or is it just coming from the Victorian age? And more often than not, the answer was, this is Victorian, not biblical. And so that sort of is was the seed of the book and just thought, kind of began there and expanded out by identifying kind of some of the central ideas and assumptions and beliefs of evangelicalism over the past 300 years and how they play out now and what's good and what's bad about them, like what we, what we need to retain and maybe where we've let it go into excess or, and left out some other important elements that would bring more wholeness and integrity to these ideas. Holding my head again, making my way through crowded thoughts. Sometimes it's hard to get out of it. Broke my heart in the dark. I was just trying to feel something Falling asleep to the sound of it We've talked about the negatives, and there is a lot of negatives. I mean, your book is addressing many of the negatives that are there, but I don't want anyone to think that we're out to take a a bat to the kneecap of evangelicalism. That's not what we're trying to do. A little bit like Martin Luther. We're calling for reformation. We we love the church. We we don't come as as individuals that are out of it throwing rocks. We come from those in it and seeing the other people that have been injured by the church. This is the whole metaphor of if you see people that are downstream, you know, that are broken, you want to help them. But after a while, you want to go up and see what the problem is that's there. And so that's what you're doing is you're taking us on that journey to see where this had become to morph. But let's stay here for a second and say, what is good? that we see within evangelicalism that we can affirm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, most of the chapters are that I that I cover in the book, and again, this is just like a big, everyone could, I, I, what my desire for anyone who picks up this book, um, who is an evangelical and, and values evangelicalism, is that they would, they would just, their eyes would be open and they would see a hundred more examples than what I cover in the book. But maybe a good example to kind of, focus on that shows what I'm trying to do in this is is one of the early ones that I um, cover in the book, and that's conversion. Conversion is an essential, central, key biblical idea and the center of, you know, of the Christian faith. And so it's, you know, you, you aren't a Christian without being converted. And evangelicals came along in the early 18th century and emphasized conversion because they existed in the context of a, of, a, of a country that had a state church. And that meant that if you were, you know, unless you were born to some family outside the state church, when you were born, you were a Christian. And you were a mm. member not only of the state as a citizen, but you were also a member of the church. And so conversion kind of got, you know, overlooked. And so they, because you were just assumed to be a Christian. And so the evangelicals recovered that emphasis on conversion, which we still have as evangelicals today, that's one of the four 
ingredients of Bevington's quadrilateral is conversionism. So I, and I, I believe you must be converted to be saved. So definitely I'm not throwing that out. But when we emphasize that too much, then as evangelicals then and now did, then we start to emphasize, you know, the things that can, can bring about conversions or bring about the appearance of conversion, like, like mass, uh, mass gatherings and coming forward to the altar and filling out the cards and filling the stadiums and counting the number of people who raise their hand. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with any of those things, but altogether, when we emphasize those things too much, then we are going to draw away from the ideas of discipleship and sanctification and just simply the whole idea, you know, it's a quantity versus quality question and they need to be balanced. It's not either or it's both and and so we can you know this actually this was you know the subject of my earlier book that you already mentioned on reading well was about the classical understanding of virtue and virtue is a moderation between and uh two extremes one of excess and one of deficiency and both are vices so virtue is kind of like the moderation the the, the balance the mean between two extremes and so we could take any one of these good things that characterizes evangelicalism, like conversion, and understand that it's a good, but all goods can become vices when they become excesses of either deficiency, you know, an excess or a deficiency. And so when we emphasize any good thing at the expense of other good things, then um, it becomes a weakness. And that's kind of what I'm just trying to draw out in this book with a number of things. And conversion is like one of the early examples. You do that well. I mean, going back to just for a moment, I know that you're highlighting the good that evangelicalism has come from it. This idea of conversion is one of them. The idea of social activism, you've talked about Wilberforce in there as well. So these are benefits and even how it's permeated into society and, and did create an essence of virtue and a Protestant work ethic. So these are good. So you're talking about the excesses when it's when it's got outside of the lane. And, and even in, and you mentioned this in the book, when you talk about conversion, and, and I think we've all done this, and I, I'm just going to cite an example. I remember being in a small group with a woman who was raised in the church in the, in the type of environment where there were culottes and shoulder pads. So you know exactly what I'm talking about, the, that type of environment. But she had this idea one time, she heard someone give their testimony at, at church where they had a radical conversion. And she lamented that her testimony wasn't, for lack of a better term, sexy. It just wasn't sexy. And I said to her, I went, this is part of the problem that we have as evangelicals is we highlight this extreme. And again, I don't want to say that it's not genuine. I'm not trying to denigrate that person who has that amazing testimony. I am trying to say her testimony in some ways is even more powerful. And I tried to tell her this. I said, because it's showing how you're, even though you're a parent in a different environment, you were spared some of that evil. And you were still have passed from death to life. Yours was a, you know, a dimmer switch and, and guys, that other guy had person, the light was off and on. You was a dimmer over time, but it's a testimony to the parents that tried to teach you the, the truths of who Jesus is. She started seeing it in, in a greater light then, but I, I think we have become so fixated with putting up the great stories because we have to somehow justify the, the validity and the authenticity and the credibility of the gospel by having these extreme stories without seeing that part of it is this catechesis of raising in your homes and with family and children and our roles in society. And this idea of 
I, I like how it was put, and I can't remember the title of the book now, but it was basically the ferment of the early church, how it permeated into the other environments, not in ways that we think going door to door. Again, not trying to knock that, it has its place. But I'm saying is, is that I think the greater credibility is showing one's life, as you said, and you mentioned this in the book, and I'm going to read this. On page 75, you say, the Bible's exhortation in Matthew 28, 19, to go and make disciples did not command us to go and make converts. I thought that was very interesting. You said, although conversion is implied, and you've already reiterated that now, because that needs a person to be saved, but you you draw it out. Again, you're addressing the excesses, so I want to make sure everyone understands that. This isn't, you have to understand it in context. Uh, since disciples must first be converted, it tells us to make disciples, followers of Jesus, who are baptized, instructed, and taught how to live lives in obedience to God's command. Because that itself is an evangelistic uh, a sign that the reality of the gospel, is that what you're trying to help us to see that it is the way, not just exclusively in salvific, but he is a means to an end. I mean, he is an end as well, but it's how we live our life. It shows the authenticity and the validity of the gospel. Right. Is that I mean, it? It's not just the moment. It's, you know, that moment is everything. It's, it's, it's just like, I mean, that's, this is one of the things I love about the phrase born again, which again, I, I talk about, but there is a birth, right? But it's, it's not just about the birth. It's the, you know, what leads up to it. I mean, life begins before birth, right? Uh, but also like what comes after it. So that moment is important, but it's not everything. And so the same is true for the Christian life. Like we, we need to be born again. We need to have that conversion experience. But the hard part is, is the disciple, the, the life that follows, the discipleship, the sanctification. And we need to focus on that too. Stop. Mixed emotions Tears, I'm not immune, I try Stop False devotion Tears, I'm not immune, I try talked to several neuroscientists and neurotheologians on the show and looking at just how the brain conceptualizes and in the church historically we've done this idea of you behave you believe then you belong but the reality in the brain it's actually the other way around you belong where you see people actually love you and care for you that leads to belief and then that changes your behavior and again for some, it's that darkness to light. Like I know some people that was their conversion, but others though, it's that gradual dimmer over time. And and people would ask me when I would get ready to baptize them. They said, well, I can't recall my, the moment I, 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 I really knew. And it's like, well, do you remember when the light was on? Did you remember that moment? Just like you're watching the sun, the sun, sunrise. It's like, it's dark. And then you look around and go, wait a minute, what the, the light's here. Right, right. <laughs> That's the same idea. Is that what you're trying to help us to see? The yeah, process absolutely. And I mean, I even share in the book how, because I was blessed to, to be born into a Christian home and raised by Christian parents. I accepted the Lord. I had my conversion experience when I was very young. I don't remember it, but I do remember my baptism. And so, you know, as someone else I quote in the book says, you know, no parent 
wants their child to have a dramatic conversion experience, right? (laughs) (laughs) You don't want them to sin is what you're saying. You don't want them to go through that hell. Yeah, we don't want that dramatic before and after. I mean, some people have that and that's that's a glorious testimony to the power of the Lord too, but also also is, you know, the, the young child convert or the person who, who, who didn't have a dramatic before to contrast with the after. I mean, it's all good. It's all, I mean, that's just our human desire. We, I mean, we, I, I'm a, I teach literature. I love great stories. I love drama, but we don't have to have that. That's not, a, that's not um, how we value or sh- should value our conversion stories. Well, for those who are shouting at your your car stereo, your phone, thinking that we're spouting heresy right now, <laughs> allow me to read from the greatest American theologian that you've included in your book, Jonathan Edwards, <laughs> who said, conversion is a great and glorious work of God's power at once changing the heart and infusing life into the dead soul. Though the grace that implanted more gradually displays itself in some than others, But as to fixing on the precise time when they put forth the very first act of grace, there is a great deal of difference in different persons. In some, it seems to be very discernible when the very time was the light switch, but others are more at a loss. In this respect, there are very many who do not know, even when they have it, that it is the grace of conversion and sometimes do not think it to be so still a long time after the manner of God's work on the soul, sometimes especially, is very mysterious. They're serious. So just to, to say that there is, we're not, we're not in uncharted waters here. This is, Absolutely. I mean, we have, we have some things that have been shown all over and over again, but let's continue on here. I'm going through the chapters because you have so many different things that you say within your book. And it is just action packed. You also talk about one of the things that I, that caught me that I, I wasn't prepared for is this idea of improvement. Now, I remember reading, uh, I was talking with Glenn Scribner. He was on the show with uh, Speak Life in the UK, Evangelist and Aussie in in UK. And he wrote a book called The Air We Breathe. And in it, he's looking at how the Bible is at the foundation of Western civilization, very much taking a chapter out of Vishal Mangalwadi's book, which is the book that made your world, this idea of it. But he talks about some of the benefits of our society or these values our society has come from the scripture itself. And he mentions this idea of progress. Now you, you alluded to that and that's your idea of improvement, but you shaped it in a way that I wasn't anticipating and how this, the, the Victorian era, and, and if I get that wrong, please correct me, helped shape this idea of self-improvement that we have and we become obsessed with approving ourselves as a culture. How had that come to be and how has it become part and parcel of our understanding of the Christian faith? Yeah, so that was a fun chapter to write, you know, because these ideas are rooted right in the 18th century where I live and move and have much of my being in my (laughs) academic life. Yeah, so progress is a bigger notion, and I do talk about that a little bit, and progress is very much an enlightenment idea, right? I mean, there's a great, one of my favorite popular writers is um, Neil Postman, may he rest in peace, and he you know, one of his books is Building a Bridge to the 18th Century. And so he has a whole chapter on um, how the 18th century invented the idea of progress, uh, which is overstating it, but still pretty accurate. And uh, although you can trace it back to obviously to the to the to the Hebrew scriptures, too, but it really took off in the Enlightenment. And so I, I treat improvement as kind of a, a narrow subset of this larger idea of progress. 
and improvement. Uh, there's a, there's you know a whole academic book that I that I read and I, I cite from like even just the word improvement developed in England in the early modern age and it was related to like your land holdings and kind of like improving the value of your land was a very specific origin of the word but of course obviously it it grew into like into improving many things and and the Victorian age was an age of improvement it was an age as I mentioned before of social reform which was really good I mean one of the things the Victorians did is to allow a few more white men to vote I mean that's like really great uh, it was a great start and uh and eventually you know we let more people vote uh that's a great social uh, social progress but another you know that kind of got narrowed and funneled into the very idea of self-improvement that you know we we see this in you know in like benjamin franklin's sort of uh formula for cultivating his virtues and improving in America. Um, but there also was a, a, a book published in, I think, 1866, in the middle of the Victorian age by Samuel Smiles called Self-Help. Um, that was so that, like, that phrase that is so ubiquitous today, self-help, the whole category of publishing, not only in Christian publishing, but secular publishing, called self-help, began in the Victorian age with a book called Self-Help. And it was very much about individuals who were pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and improving their lives. And it was a very individualistic focus, which is, again, tends to be a characteristic of evangelicalism. That's the air I breathe. That's the air most of us breathe, not just as evangelicals, but as Americans, this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and improving and making progress. And it's good. Like, I, I, I think we should improve and we should be better. But there's a point, again, when it becomes excessive, when we start to buy into the idea of improving things that don't need to be improved or just thinking that because something is new or has new packaging, that's also improved. And so we're surrounded. So it becomes it's become part of this consumeristic ethos that defines late modernity, where we just we. We're always looking for the newer or the better, the bigger, the new package. Uh, and we think that it's actually really an improvement when, in fact, there are some things that don't need to be improved upon. And another point that I try to draw out is there's a difference between like improvement, which is almost like a kind of tinkering and actually being a new creature, which is what we become when we are saved and in Christ. And so sometimes we can just settle for the self-help and the self-improvement when what we're really called to be is entirely new creatures. It's interesting though, you brought this out with you, you talked about clothing and you talked about how we give our old clothing and now even, of course, we give it to like Goodwill or what have you, and then they end up shipping it off or someplace to other countries. And now other countries are so inundated, they're saying, please stop sending it. It's become such an issue we're addicted to the new because we're also trying to find status. It it was interesting. I I was interviewing Jim Wilder of Life Model Works and he said, our brains are intuitive to status. He said, it's it's fascinating. He said, it's it, as I sit down with you, he goes, it takes my brain a 40th of a second to determine whether you're male or female, but a 400th of a second to determine if your status is higher or lower than mine. So it's this idea that we're so sensitive of who we belong to. And part of the reason I think in the pandemic, when people had masks, we, we actually read faces 
And this is the thing he talks about from the time we're very young of who our people are. And people couldn't read who that they belonged with, this idea. And part of the addiction we have today is everyone is clamoring for this idea of status, of belonging, of acceptance, and we're addicted to the new. And that itself is a value that we think we can buy that. And it, and it satisfies it for a while. But as you said, we have to see and find our identity in Christ, understanding that we're new creatures, that no matter how much we are preoccupied with self, and we have more resources than we've ever had on this self-improvement. I mean, now people are taking it to changing the plastic surgery or changing my gender and, and this obsession saying, no, 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 no. When Christ comes and remakes you, you're a new creature. But I think, and maybe, and I think you and I would both probably agree on this. The issue is not so much with Jesus making us a new creature. It's finding agreement with the people of that claim to have Jesus. And those are the ones that we don't feel like we belong with because of how they treat other people oftentimes, how parochial they can be, limited. Um, and, and it seems as if it's an expression of Jesus and holiness, but what it becomes is its own form of self-feeding narcissism in, in the process. And I think that's what you're trying to, to bring out. So if I'm wrong, feel free to clear. No, no. I mean, th- there's an element where all of this celebrity status and trampling on other people to get whatever it is we need, that, that, that's all rooted in the idea of improvement, right? And, and elevation of self. That's not new creatureliness and embracing ourselves as, as, those, as that new creature, which never wears off, right? If we're a new creature, that's a kind of newness that never tarnishes like the things that we gravitate to to substitute for that real newness. Well, there's that juxtaposition that we're seeing of the, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, where we're the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But we see within the church, that's not how it's often worked out. It's that who has the most charismatic personality, who has control, who has the institutional power that's there. It's a clamor to hold on to it as a, as a means of justification of, they say, gospel integrity, but it's really just a means of contr- their version of control that we often see going on today of maintaining what is the status quo because if you really went upside down kingdom there it's going to change everything in which we go about it and that's that's what i've seen in the values we had i had michael kruger on and we did a whole episode on spiritual abuse and the means that people use and i i use saul as my test case the king saul because he's the most spiritually abusive person you'll ever see he uses the the things of god against david to try to kill it i mean this is a messed up situation nothing that's new here but he constantly uses it to get what he wants to justify himself and it becomes a smokescreen for his own spiritual desires and we in his own fallen desires that we see going on in our culture today and so you're bringing that out in this i mean even in the 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 part where you mentioned the bootstraps you actually chronicle and i can't remember who it was and i can't find it where it's a shame to say it to a person who doesn't even have boots Oh yeah, Martin Luther King Jr. said that. Right, right. Like it's you know, we, that's a that's a, one of the you know sort of American ideals that we often d- don't examine the idea of you know pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, that's that's all fun and good unless you're someone who doesn't have any boots. Yeah. And which is where we have to put ourselves at the table with the majority world and eat theology with them to see. Because that, again, removes our own cultural barriers and assumptions that we have. And now I, w- I want to transition here for a moment. Uh, actually, no, I want to highlight one more thing. I want you to explain this quote. Nobody with a good car needs to be justified. <laughs> oh. explain, explain that for us. 
Well, you know, we chatted a little bit before the before we started recording today, and you confessed to me that you also love Flannery O'Connor. So <laughs> I do, I do. I know that's why you wanted to highlight that. Um, so yeah, that I mean, I, I so that comes from O'Connor's novel Wise Blood, and uh, for me, that quote just encapsulates, you know, some of the things that I that I'm trying to highlight here this idea you know the, the things that are really you know modern and american that you know that we are saved uh and our lives are improved by having things or having better things and connor just kind of satirizes that uh in this character at um at the center of wise blood when he says nobody who has a good car needs to be justified i mean and, and it, it's you know she's it's satire it's critique but if we really will open ourselves to it, I mean, we all fall for that, I think, in one way or another. Like we do look to, like you already talked about, it may not be the car, uh, it might be the status, or it might be the friendships, it might be the platforms that we have that we think justify us. Um, or the, or the size of your church. I mean, for pastoral yeah, ministries, that, sure, I, sure. I, I have a big church. There's, uh, what can you say to me? I have a big church. Look what I'm doing. It justifies the means. No, he cares yeah, just great, about the means. That's a great example because that one, that hits close to home. And it's so easy to, to spiritualize that, to say, oh, that's, you know, that represents a number of souls and my discipleship, the size of my ministry. No, it doesn't. It, it really doesn't. I mean, it, it, like you said before, it's a both end. It's, 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 this is where we get into the people are like, well, I have the numbers. Yeah, but it's the whole, there's, we're about holiness, surrender. That doesn't fit on a stat sheet. And as you said, uh, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase you, but it's, it's a both end. We look at numbers, but that only plays a small part of, of the, of the formula as it were. Um, because I mean, we do have a book called numbers. You do have how many were souls were saved in acts and Pentecost. And those, those are things, but, but again, Holiness, surrender, that doesn't fit on the stat sheet. And that's not always sexy because you don't see that. The numbers you see, and we're attracted, again, the narrative that we have in our culture, success means X. That's what it means. And that's why I, I was influenced by um, Ken Hughes had a book in the 90s called Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And basically, he said, he said was his success is not numbers. Success is not platform. Success is not influence. Success is loving. Success is faithfulness. Success is sacrifice. Success is suffering. And I thought, wow. But it's, that's not how it is, oftentimes. I mean, really. You don't platform a guy with a church of 100 people. You platform a guy with a church of 10,000. Just the way that it is. <laughs> Imagination is so much bigger than just making stuff up in my head like Lord of the Rings. Although that was huge, by the way. When I think about what Tolkien did with that, I'm, I'm really blown away. But many of us don't have imaginations like that. However, we do employ our imaginations each day. I mean, don't believe me? The imagination is simply a tool that you deploy when you think about the way things are or what things ought to be and what you aspire to. It's the thing that frames our understanding of really what the good life is. So let me ask you this. What is the good life to you? I want you to, to define it, and I want you to send it my way. You can email me, Travis, at apolloswater.org, or interact with us with on one of our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel, where you can see this and many other conversations, because we want to know what you are thinking. 
And I know that for many of us, when I have a conversation, I hear what people think the good life is, even though they may not say it. It might be traveling to Cancun for spring break or traveling the world for a mission trip. Maybe it's having a nice boat to play in for the summer. Or is it saving for the kids' college and having a good 401k? Maybe it's having your own home. I mean, at what intersection does earthly pursuit meet your heavenly one? And because we are historical, social creatures who live in this moment in time in the world, who have to interact in the web of relationships, this means that our imaginations are not neutral. They are lenses, like eyeglasses, that help us to see the world around us, even the scriptures. And if the prescription is off, even a little, it can have a significant effect on how we see and interact with the world. That's where we come in. We want to make sure you get your prescription right. Karen Swallow Pryor is doing an important thing for us in this book. She is helping us to recognize that we all have cultural lenses that have been shaped by the world around us. And for some of us, we have been shaped in ways that we may not even realize. Like, what is the American dream, for example? Have you ever wondered that? Where does that idea come from? And is it biblical? Where did we even get this idea from? See, how much of that, for example, if you are in the West, even if you're not in the West, I know many look at America and they see, that's what I want to have. How has that shaped how you are seeing the world? And when you start to think about that, you're starting to get an idea. Because we are always trying to examine who we are and what we're doing. Making sure all of what we do, believe, imagine, and pursue is conforming to Scripture instead of us conforming Scripture to our imaginations. And to a certain degree, we will always get it wrong. We are fallen creatures after all. And this is one of the reasons we are so committed to hearing from, learning from the church around the world. Because they have different cultural assumptions, different imaginations, if you will. They see things that we don't and vice versa. Together we see God and one another better. As you can tell, we have a lot more to talk about. We will get into some of the specific ways that our imaginations have been shaped in part two. So until next time, keep cleaning your lenses of life, if you will, with the water of the word. (laughs) And then pursue Jesus with all that you are where you are. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. A 